Okay, so today, here's what we got. We're going to start the book of Micah, okay? We're going to start the book of Micah, and um, this is, for if you're guests or you're guests online, you're guests here, the book of Micah is a part of our whole series called the Minor Prophets. There's 12 Minor Prophets, and we're preaching through each book, and we're kind of trying to take it as much as we can chronologically. We've gone through Obadiah, Joel, which have some chronology to it that we're uncertain, but we went ahead and preached those first, and then... We've preached Obadiah, Jonah, we've preached Hosea, we just finished Hosea. These are all prophets that are talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. Now we're going to hit Micah. And Micah is kind of that transition. Micah is still speaking towards the northern kingdom of Israel and the upcoming exile they're going to experience from Assyria. However, Micah is a southern kingdom prophet and he's actually going to the bulk of the book, be speaking prophecies towards the southern kingdom of Judah. So he's kind of a transitionary. He says some things, especially in the first two chapters, regarding Israel. And now he'll focus a lot on Judah, the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem as we get through Micah. But he's kind of that transitionary. So we finished Hosea, and basically Hosea is continuing to tell uh, the northern kingdom, man, you got to repent. Go back and do what the Mosaic Covenant, do the Mosaic Law. Follow the Ten Commandments. Follow God's civil law that descend from the Ten Commandments. Follow God's ceremonial law, the sacrificial system of of forgiveness of sins pointing forward to Christ. So, So Hosea had told them to do that. They weren't doing it. They were building idols. They were worshiping false gods. They were they. And anytime you you don't worship God right, you actually don't love people right. So they were perverting justice. They were taking advantage of the poor. They had tons of uh, social injustice. And now we get to Micah, who basically is a contemporary of Hosea. So while Hosea is alive and writing, so is Micah. But Micah is also a contemporary of Isaiah. So if you want to kind of dig in as we go through Micah, you might want to go ahead and decide to read one of the major prophets, Isaiah, because Isaiah is prophesying to some of the same kings that Micah is prophesying to as well. You'll see here in a minute, verse 1, Micah prophesies to King Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Uh, Well, these, uh, these names of kings in the Old Testament, they're going to get me in trouble someday. I mean, it's like hard to keep them in your head, but that's who he's... Micah is prophesying during his ministry, during the kings of the southern kingdom of Jotham and, and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And so is Isaiah. You see Isaiah. You see Isaiah with the kingdom of Uzziah. And then you see him into Jotham, Ahaz as well. So if you want to get a, a cons, uh, just a good background, read Isaiah. And he'll start making sense with some of the stuff that I talk about when we're in the book of Micah. So now as we start Micah. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel what Hosea has been prophesying, what, what, even, what even Isaiah is prophesying, that like there's going to come an Assyrian captivity over the northern kingdom of Israel. But Micah does something interesting in that he also prophesies that, that Assyria is going to come against Judah. So let me just help you historically. By the way, I'm giving you a little background. Here's a little introduction. Then we'll get to the theme of the message. I've got to give you a little introduction to Micah. So uh, Micah is doing something interesting. He he's warns the northern kingdom of Israel about the coming Assyrian captivity for Israel. Remember, he's a southern, he's a Judah, he's a, he's a southern prophet. He warns the southern kingdom that years later, guess what's going to happen? Assyria is going to be big for their britches, and they're going to come down here and try to take you, Judah. But the Lord is going to actually deliver you from this. And then he also tells them, but you're not going to repent long term. And Babylon, years later, is going to come and get you. So he lays, Micah lays this out. So does Isaiah, their contemporaries. You would kind of look at it like this. Isaiah's kind of more, uh, he speaks more to the nobility. That's kind of his message is to the leaders. And Micah's kind of your street level kind of guy speaking to the people. But both of them are contemporaries in the southern kingdom, Isaiah and Micah. So... Right now, when we read this book, it's, it's hard to kind of know exactly, but here's what I think. And when I say something I think, that means I could change my mind. But at this point, here's what I can best think. I think when we read Micah, and we get kind of chapters 1 through 2, I think that he's really giving this during King, uh, King Ahaz's reign in the southern kingdom of Judah. And then it, it seems to me that when we get to chapter 3... It didn't seem to me. I know really for sure by chapter 3, verse 12, 
that Micah is speaking during King Hezekiah's reign. Now, right now, you might be going like, Ahaz, Hezekiah, who are these people? I don't know. This is why you want to read your Bible, right? And if you're kind of like, okay, help me out with this, do this. Go to the last five chapters of 2 Kings. Go to basically the last five chapters of 2 Chronicles and read about these kings. You read about these kings, you're going to understand some of the background of what's going on here with Micah. But here's what I do think is happening. I think he's speaking during King Ahaz's reign of the southern kingdom, the first two chapters. And then I think by chapter 3, verse 12, for sure, I think that he's speaking during King Hezekiah's reign. Now, you might be going like, what does it matter with these kings? Well, I'll show you a couple things. Um, now, remember, we're still in the introduction. I've got to introduce this a little bit. This may seem weird, but I want you to do this. Look in Micah chapter 3. This is why I would say, I think he's speaking during King Ahaz. Which, by the way, when you look at verse 1, Micah tells us he does his ministry during King Jotham, King Ahaz, and King Hezekiah. But we find specifically, this is why I think Micah makes a transition in chapter 3, verse 12, at least for sure, that I know that he's speaking, uh, at least by verse 12, earlier in chapter 3, that he's speaking during Hezekiah's time, at least during this part. In verse 12, it says this, He gives this prophecy to Hezekiah. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now you might look at that and go, what does that mean? He basically, in verse 12, is saying that someday Babylon is going to come get you. Just like they came and got Assyria, the northern kingdom. Babylon's going to come get you, the southern kingdom. Now hold your place there and go over to Jeremiah. You might be thinking, why are we going to Jeremiah? Like I thought, I thought we were doing Micah. Well, I just want you to, I want you to see something. By the way, when you read Jeremiah, you're starting to get to the very end of the reign of the southern kingdom of Judah, right? And one of the things that happens is Jeremiah, which is very interesting. <laughs> Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was prophesying right here in Jeremiah 26, it is during the reign of Zedekiah. Zedekiah is one of the final kings of the southern kingdom. And at this time, Zedekiah was already a puppet king of, uh, of, of Babylon. Babylon had already come and already had, had taken away King Jehoiakim already before that and put Zedekiah on. Zedekiah was basically a puppet king of Babylon. So Babylon already kind of had a lot of control already. The handwriting was already on the wall. But yet Jeremiah comes in and says, hey, just so you know, not going to get any better for you, Zedekiah. Like, he's going to come get the kingdom. Like, officially, Judah's going to end. Everything's going to be destroyed. You're going to go into Babylonian captivity. And the people do not take kindly to it, especially kind of the higher nobility. And you come over here to Jeremiah chapter 26 and verse 16, and then the officials and the people start to defend Jeremiah for his prophecy. And here's the reason why. Here's what they say in verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and prophets, remember, they want to kill Jeremiah for this prophecy that, that during Zedekiah's reign, that basically Babylon's going to come and send you into exile. Which, by the way, Zedekiah is a, pro, is a puppet king to Babylon already at this point. He says this. This man, they say, this man, talking about Jeremiah, does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to the assembly of the people, saying, Micah of Moresheth, Micah, the guy we're going to be studying, he prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a, reap of, of, uh, uh, a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house of wooded height. He quotes Micah 3, 12. And here's what he says in verse 19. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had promised against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. You can go back over to Micah. So in 3.12, we know at least Hezekiah had to have been on the scene right here because the, the people defending Jeremiah's prophecy says, hey, well, you didn't get... Like King Hezekiah didn't do anything to, to, to Micah when he gave this prophecy about Babylon coming in. By the way, just... A side note, people all the time go, man, I can't believe this kind of God in the Old Testament would, would send them into exile. 
they only went into exile because of their own sin. But God was so gracious. How was God so gracious? He telegraphed the whole entire thing. Babylon was no surprise to them later that what they were going into was no surprise. Nothing was shocking by this. During Zedekiah's day, when, when he's the, one of the final kings kind of basically of, 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 it, of the southern kingdom of Judah, it was no coincidence. It, was no, it, it wasn't a surprise to him what happened. God in his graciousness had warned man over and over and over of his sin. That's how gracious our God is. So gracious that he continues to warn us. In fact, the very reason why any of us would want to repent of sin, Romans tells us, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. What's the kindness of God? That he would warn us of our sin and warn us of our sin and warn us and give us so many opportunities. It is amazing to me. No one deserves salvation. I'm still surprised and amazed that any of us were able to take a breath this morning, aren't you? I mean, if you really understand the depravity of yourself, you really would be just shocked and surprised. So that's Micah. He's, he's talking to them. He's prophesying in the final days of, of, of Israel uh, for sure. And, and then we see that by 3, 6, 312, Hezekiah must be on the scene. Now let me tell you what his name means. Here's what Micah's name means. Who is like Yahweh? What a great name. By uh, David and Diane Dries, that's what they gave their oldest son, the name Micah. I, I've not asked them, but I feel almost assured it comes after this guy, right? I just have a sneaky suspicion. Who is like Yahweh? I love that name. Who is like Yahweh? Yeah, because no one is like Yahweh. That word Yahweh, remember, means, I mean, if God could describe himself by a name, what name would he pick? He picks a name that says, I am what I am. How can you describe a God that's so infinite, so unfathomable, so far above? I am what I am. So Micah's name, when you see Micah's name, it basically means, no one compares to Yahweh. No one is as awesome as him. No one is as infinite as him. Which, just a side note, I think one of the things that man does a lot now, man who is not in Christ, is that he constantly thinks that this is the way I think life should work, and if this was a good God, if he really was loving and gracious and good and holy, this is how life would work out. And what I would say is this, who do you think you are? Like, who is Yahweh, right? Who is like Yahweh? Do you think you're like Yahweh? Do you think you're a Micah? I mean, like, do you think you're Yahweh that you can figure it out? You can't. This is why, this is why every time we try to figure out every nuance of God and it doesn't compute, it's because we're finite, we're frail. We're not going to be able to put it all together. So... Who's like Yahweh? That's what Micah's name means. No one's like Yahweh. By the way, this is why he's so worthy to be worshipped above every other God. I would not want to worship a God I could easily figure out. Now, the great thing is this. He has given us enough of his word, and we can figure him out enough that we can love him, serve him, glorify him, and worship him. In this book is enough direction for everything we need preparing ourselves for glory. Yahweh has revealed his infinite self enough what we need and what he has not revealed, like, did Adam have a belly button? Well, guess what? That's going to happen someday in eternity, I presume. That'll be the first thing I ask Adam, probably. So, this is Micah. He's preaching. He's a contemporary of Isaiah, of Hosea. And he's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. He's prophesying about the southern kingdom of Israel. We at least know by chapter 3 he seems to be Hezekiah. It seems to be during Hezekiah's reign. More than likely, one through two is probably some of Ahaz. <clears throat> okay, let me just point out a couple things about Micah in relation to Isaiah. If you read Isaiah, which I really encourage you during this, I'm, I'm restudying Isaiah. I read Isaiah, I think about six months ago, and, and I'm kind of restudying it here. If you were to look, you're going to see some similar messages in the book of Isaiah and Micah. Of course you would. They're contemporaries of each other. Both Isaiah and the book of Micah foretell of the future Babylonian exile. exile and both Micah and, and Isaiah prophesy that Assyria is going to come and attack the southern kingdom, but they're going to be thwarted. And we're going to actually look at that more next week about the prophecy that Assyria would actually try to come and take Judah, but God miraculously stops that whole mess. So both prophesy about that. Both prophets... Uh, anticipate Isaiah and Micah both talk about 
the exiles returning from Assyrian Babylon. So basically, those northern kingdom people who get exiled into Assyria, some of those get in, get get pulled over into the new Babylonian kingdom, and so some of Israel, some of those ten tribes still continue. But then some of those people who, when the exile happened, they fled from the northern kingdom down to the southern kingdom. So to this day, people go, are there lost? tribes of Israel, the ten lost tribes, I go, no, you even see in the New Testament some of those people from those ten northern tribes, you can still see their names and their tribes connected together. So that's not absolutely true. Both Isaiah and Micah, both prophets share this vision that is that Jerusalem will be the highest mountain on the earth. It's going to be the center of God's activity. Both Micah and, 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 and Isaiah talk about this. And what's interesting, when you take all twelve books of the minor prophets, and if you were to go let me, by the way, originally they didn't, it wasn't in verses, right? You understand that? Like, it wasn't, when Jesus spoke, he didn't say, in verse 12, in verse 13, right? That was something we added later so that you could reference the Bible. But nonetheless, if you were to say, where's the center point of all 12 prophets, minor prophets? Where's the center point? Give me the center verse. Guess what verse it is? It's chapter 3, verse 12. That's the center one. That's the one that talks about Judah going into Babylonian captivity. And by the way, when you read the end of Kings, Second Kings, and it talks about the southern kingdom going into Babylonian exile, one of the things it says, it's very thin, it's very subtle. They go into exile for 70 years, and then the scriptures talk about one of the, one of the reasons for this. Now, we already know it's for their paganism, their idolatrous worship. But it says that they didn't observe the Sabbath. They didn't rest in the Lord. They, you know, like, like it's interesting. They didn't take a rest in the Lord, so the Lord makes them take a rest on their own. Now, don't think I'm not getting to this kind of law-keeping Sabbath, but I will tell you there's something about the rhythm of saying, here's a day that even from creation standards that I'm going to set aside and, and give focus back to the Lord. I need this Sabbath of my soul. That's why I'm telling you, even if you're online or you're here, it's still important to set a rhythm of life that you go, I need to Sabbath in the Lord. And by the way, I'm talking to you as a hypocrite, right? So, I mean, just know, I mean, preachers aren't perfect. They're, they're probably some of the biggest hypocrites in the room. Like, their judgment was also tied to their lack of Sabbathing. By the way, I don't know all that God's doing in all this coronavirus. I don't know all that he's doing. I know that he's always up to something good. I know he's always perfect. I know, I know he's Micah. I know he's like, who is like Yahweh? But you know what's interesting? Before the coronavirus, I would describe most of us as not Sabbathing very well at all. Right? I mean, like, Sunday, Sunday church, if we even did that, and I'm not calling Sunday church the Sabbath like Saturday. Okay, you understand. But I find this. Most of us kind of like left church and like we were back on the run, right? Little thought about the Lord or meditating. I mean, like life was just such a pace. And then we were entertaining ourselves. There, was, there were movie theaters. There were games. I mean, even I remember when I first became a Christian in 97, or I'm sorry, 96, you didn't have ball games on a Sunday. You didn't. I mean, that would be anathema. You'd never do that kind of thing. But now we find even now like, you know, our great Mecca soccer complex over here off off the highway, I mean, games would be going all through Sunday, all through Sunday night. Nothing was sacred anymore. Even all kind of athletics were held during that time. There, and, and I'm not saying that was necessarily wrong all of itself. I'm just saying, did y'all notice there wasn't much of a Sabbath? Right? Did you notice there wasn't much of a Sabbath? There, people weren't actually slowing down and taking time in the Scriptures, taking time with their family, praising God, like trying to establish some kind of Sabbath rhythm. Did you see that? And what does God do? God says, if you won't Sabbath, I'll make you Sabbath. Not because I'm bad, because I want something better for you. Because you can't live on a train. You can't live the life of no Sabbath. So what does the Lord do? He pulls it back. Guess what? You can't go to a movie theater. <laughs> you know, you can't do it. You know, and, and for a space of time, you can't have ball games. Now, I know there's some starting even now, but it's not as robust as it was. Like, you can't even watch ball games on TV anymore. Now, they're still trying to figure it out, and they're fumbling over themselves. I wonder, and I don't know, so don't, I'm not a prophet, but I wonder. 
the southern kingdom of Judah, of course the northern kingdom, but now we're kind of getting to the southern kingdom a little bit, but both, they did not Sabbath. And when God's people didn't Sabbath, they went rogue from God. And when you get to the end of 2 Kings, you find that when they're going into Babylonian captivity, the southern kingdom of Judah, that God mentions the Sabbath. They're going for 70 years because they didn't take a Sabbath rest. So God says, I'm going to make you Sabbath. And you find this. While they're in Babylon, there is this resurgence of them worshiping the Lord. They've got nowhere else to turn. They kind of, I mean, this is why, remember you got Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel. You see some faithfulness happening. I mean, you even see Ezekiel, his prophet, his, that major prophet is happening during that Babylonian time. He's encouraging them, get yourself ready, you're coming back to the land someday. The Sabbath. I wonder, have we, have we, is part of God's overall plan, one of the things he's doing. And, and listen, guys, I don't know. People keep saying, do you think the coronavirus is God's way of, like, um, is this like the catalytic event that brings about his return? Could be, could not be. I don't know. I know this, it's always been imminent. So, is Jesus going to return? Absolutely. Is it going to be like a thief in the night? Absolutely. Are many people not going to be ready? Absolutely. Is there going to be a great falling away? Absolutely. Do we see this right now? Absolutely. Have we seen that in the past? Absolutely. I have no idea. But that doesn't change anything I do. Even if the coronavirus was God about to come back because of it, it shouldn't have changed what we did six months ago. All right? None of it should actually have changed. We were always supposed to be living in the imminent return of Jesus, right? It shouldn't have changed anything. Now, what it could have done is woken up people who have ignored the message of God. Maybe it sobered them up a little bit. But for God's people, this shouldn't have sobered us up anymore. So, like, rest your heart. I, so, like, here's what's happening right now. You even see a lot of prophets right now prophesying through YouTube. And, 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 and I get them. I get constant videos. And they've been happening for years. But they've been happening more about prophecies of what God's doing. And I will tell you this. If this is some end-time sequence that's launching off things, I, I would tell you this. God already told us about this. We already know. The word is already complete and already final. We don't need any new prophecy. And by the way, I, this is where I am personally. I don't believe in the, 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 the gift of prophecy in the sense of someone's prophesying like the scriptures prophesy, foretelling that Jesus is returning in the next three months or anything of that nature. It's going to come as a thief in the night. That just seems. And then the prophecy seems to be closed with the book of Revelation. But, but I will tell you this. Whenever a prophet spoke from God, they knew they spoke from God. And so even what you find, sometimes when prophets speak now and put their YouTube clips out, a lot of times they're kind of acting unsure. And a prophet never did that. So I'm just telling you this. It may, this may be a part of what, what God is doing, but it should have not changed a thing that we did. And there could be multiple things that God is doing, I do know this. They, Micah, prophesies about that southern kingdom going into captivity and one of the many multitude of tentacles of reasons, what one was, they didn't rest. They didn't rest in the Lord. Here's what I would encourage us to do. Even in the midst of this, don't forget to rest. You know, um, some companies have not fared very well during this season, right? Some have not. Restaurants, not a great business to be in during this time, right? Ho- hotel industry, not a good... But guess what is a good industry to be in during this time? Netflix. Hulu. Like all the... Here would be my encouragement. Like those platforms have grown and more and more people... I mean like Netflix, man, they've made a killing. Their stock's gone up. Like things have gone really swellingly for them. Digital platforms gone swellingly for them. And here's what I'm kind of going like. Listen... The Lord kind of made it where you had to kind of go into Babylon, so to speak, for a season of time. Don't pilfer that on just complete, mindless binge-watching. Like, Sabbath in the Lord during this time. This will be a great time to read Isaiah. This will be a great time to read to read Second Kings and Second Chronicles and kind of go like, okay, who in the world is Hezekiah and Zedekiah and Jehoiakim? And like, what? What are these names? A Sabbath. By the way, I'm still an introduction. Don't y'all enjoy that, right? <laughs> There's still an introduction. I got 20 minutes left. By the way, I'm not planning to get through chapter 1 today, so I already gave up that dream, okay, this morning as I was... I'm kind of like, okay, Lord, I know I can get to verse 8. Like, we can do this, Jesus. So I kind of gave up on the rest, so... 
That part was, yeah, yeah. Well, you'll get next week. You'll get, you'll get verse 9 through, uh, I believe it's verse 20, or 16 next week. So, that's our prophet. Now, let me show you something else, introduction, and we'll look at verse 1. Turn to the very back of Micah. Now, the reason over the last two weeks I spoke to you about covenants, about covenants, because I want you to understand that this ties in to what the prophets speak about. Major prophets, even minor prophets, and more and more, I, I want you to understand the, the weight of this. Because remember, when we study this co- these covenants, they were unconditional except for the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was, you've got to obey the Ten Commandments. You've got to obey the civil laws for Israel's civil society that descend from the Ten Commandments. You've got to obey the ceremonial laws that you see through Leviticus, that, the, the sacrificial system that actually points to Jesus. You've got to obey this. Don't worship false gods. Don't burn your children to false gods. All right? Take the Sabbath. Do, do the Sabbath. Do the Passover. Do the feasts. I mean, everything, that the, that's the whole law of Moses. That was conditional. It meant if you want God's blessing in the land, you've got to do this. Conditional. And when they get into the promised land, what the prophets keep telling the people is, if you don't obey the covenant of Moses, it's going to go bad for you. You're going to leave the land. God's going to judge you. He's a loving and gracious God, but he is not a God who puts up with sin. Like, he will judge you for this. Get back on track. He's giving you, he's giving you the law of Moses. We know what to do. Every king, every new king that keeps getting set up, they were supposed to read the law of Moses. The kings were supposed to write out Deuteronomy and keep reviewing it. And they didn't. Well, actually, the ones that did, you saw some righteousness. Now, here's what's interesting. Mosaic, we talked about last two weeks, Mosaic was a conditional covenant. But the rest of the covenants were unconditional, meaning this, even if the people weren't faithful, God would be faithful, right? So you have the Abrahamic covenant. That was like God cuts the covenant with Abraham, and Abraham was passed out on the side when that happened. The Davidic covenant, that was unconditional. That's what God was going to do in spite of even David's unfaithfulness in the moment. So here's what you find. The prophets... They are decrying the sin of the people. They're saying, you've desecrated the covenant of Moses. You've not kept this conditional covenant. However, where you fail, God never fails. So even as you end the book of Micah, don't think like these prophets are all kind of like, you're bad, you're sinners, that's it, just judgment for you. They're saying that, but they're also saying, there's a better hope coming. There's a better day. Where you've been unfaithful, God will be faithful. And even look at how Micah closes out. By the way, Micah decries their sin, but you'll see in chapter 4 and 5, he talks about a restored kingdom. He, he mentions it. But even look in chapter 7, seven verse 20. Ending off the book. Remember, he had told them, Assyria, you're going in captivity. Guess what, southern kingdom? You're, you're, although you'll be saved from Assyria for a little bit, you're going to go into Babylonian captivity. But look at verse 20. Capping off the book. You will show... He's talking about what God will do for them. God will, Yahweh, will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. He closes the book with hope. He closes the book and says, although you were unfaithful to the Mosaic covenant, God will be faithful to the Abrahamic covenant. And why is this so important? Because... These covenants actually point us to Jesus. Jesus would be the faithful Abrahamic covenant. Jesus, Jesus would be faithful to make sure that he would be our God and we would be his people. And Jesus would perfectly keep the Mosaic covenant. So that where we can't keep the Mosaic covenant, where we break, when we were commandment breakers, Jesus completely and perfectly fulfilled the commandments. So although you see judgment and destruction and sin and, it is, and, and of what Micah talks about, he also doesn't leave off the hope of the covenants, especially <coughs> these unconditional covenants. Okay, are you all with me? That's the introduction. It only took me 25 minutes. Now, let's get to verse 1. By the way, I'd have to say this just as a pastor in our church. Uh, I am very privileged to get to be your pastor, and because uh, here's why. I don't know of very many churches that would put up with me. I mean, like, for real, like, I don't know of many churches that would actually go like, okay, we'll keep doing this minor prophet thing. Like, this is difficult. Do you know that the, here's how most people approach church? What church you go to? I go to this church because I get this 
I, I get what I need to get fed. Like I get something for my life directly today. I, I hear what I need to hear. And the commitment of our church is you're not always going to hear what you want to hear, but you're going to hear from the scriptures. And, and here's the deal. Almost every church on our landscape, here's how they work. Topical message series. Nothing wrong with them intrinsically. Topical message series, pulling a verse out, and then kind of you do that for about four weeks, and then you switch into another for the next four weeks, another. And every message series is really about what are the felt needs of the people, right? That's kind of how it usually works in our time. That's, that's kind of that, that secret sensitivity that we've all created. We, we usually pick the church we want to go to because we, it gives us exactly what we want. But here's what I love about our people. If you come to this church, if you're online and you come here someday or you're online and you're kind of continuing to be a part of us um, or you're, you know, you're new online and you kind of watch this through your other friends' Facebook feeds, I'm just telling you, what's unique about this church is we can study through difficult portions of Scripture. We can... I mean, what I'm talking about today takes some biblical literacy and is going to make you kind of go, take some Sabbath time and read the book of Isaiah. Take some Sabbath time and read Micah. Take some Sabbath time and read Second Kings and Second Chronicles. Read the last five chapters there. Like, do this. I'm so thankful for this church because I don't know many places that I would ever be allowed to do this, honestly, right? And, and you know, I'm not even sure it's really good, but, but here's the deal. My soul has gotten fed so much for being able to go verse by verse, line by line, since 2012, and my predecessor was able to do the same thing, and no one ever tar and feathered him or myself for doing such things, right? I mean, like, we've taken years to preach through books of the Bible, and no one, everybody's been like, yeah, praise the Lord. I love that. I hope we never change that. I hope that if you ever, God ever moves you, that you don't ever go to a church that tells you what you want to hear, but a church that declares the full counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation. If that church will not do that, if God moves you to another place, or God moves you to another church, even in our area, sometimes he does that, do not go to a church that's just going to feed you some garbage of whatever you want to hear week by week. Make sure it's one that goes through the scriptures. I just want to take a chance to just Thank you, guys, because not many people would put up with this, right? All right, verse 1. All right, you're welcome. Thank you all. I, verse 1. And the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth. We got here. Twelve minutes left in my sermon, guys. We got to verse 1. It's amazing. And the word of the Lord came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria in Jerusalem. Can I say a little bit about these three kings quickly? Jotham, pretty much you can read about him in 2 Kings 15. Uh, he was a good king, but he did not remove the high places, which that's basically where the idolatrous worship was happening, right? Good king, but did not remove those high places. Then after him, you have Ahaz, bad king. You can read about him next in 2 Kings 16. Bad king, does not remove the high places, goes rogue, does bad, does wrong does not follow the Mosaic Covenant, does not follow, leads them astray. Ahaz is a bad king. I think the first couple chapters is during Ahaz's reign, actually, where it's being, where, what Micah is prophesying, although he covered Jotham's reign as well. Let me tell you a little bit about Ahaz. So here's what's happening at the time. Ahaz is the king of, southern, of, of Judah, southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom, you have Rezin, I'm sorry, you have Pekah, uh, the northern king of Israel, of Israel at this time, Pekah, and then you have the Syrian, not Assyrian, but the Syrian king, Razan. Razan and Pekah are getting tired of paying tribute, paying taxes to the king of Assyria up here. So they kind of go like, let's league together. If we get strong, we won't have to pay him anymore. Hey, and by the way, Ahaz, why don't you join us up? And, and you know, if we have the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and Syria, there's going to be enough collective ally here that we can actually not pay Assyria more because like Assyria is getting a little bit powerful and we've had some pretty good years. So that's what they kind of say to Ahaz, right? And Ahaz decides to do this. It's kind of foolish. Ahaz, instead of... Uh, actually, Isaiah tells Ahaz, you need to trust the Lord. Like the Lord has given y'all this land. Like this is the Lord's fight. But what does Ahaz do? Ahaz decides instead to start paying off the Assyrian king and basically says... Help me with these guys, and I'll just become a vassal of you, right? So Ahaz is a bad king. He actually starts paying off a foreign power 
that would someday come and get Israel, but even would someday try to attack Judah. He's a bad king, right? He's a bad king. In the end, the next king, the last king of the northern kingdom, Hosea, actually kills Ahaz. But in fact, here's one of the things that happens about Ahaz. Like, so what happens is he pays, he pays off the, the king at the time of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. He pays him off. And then basically is, is, is the king of Assyria is basically overcoming Syria. And basically the northern kingdom of Israel starts paying him off at that time because they know they can't beat him. Ahaz sees a pagan altar in Syria that he likes. And he decides to start building that altar back in Jerusalem, right? He's a bad king. He promotes even more false, idolatrous worship. Then after that, you got King Hezekiah in verse 1. Right? These are the kings that served during his time. King Hezekiah. Let me tell you about King Hezekiah. Read about this dude. Second Kings chapter 18. Day 1, he comes in and he starts establishing some reform. I mean, they're getting back to the Passover. They're getting back to following the Lord. They're getting back to temple sacrifice. They're getting, they're getting back to Sabbath observance. Like, they're getting back to doing the things that they ought to do to follow the Lord. King Hezekiah is a great king. He's described as a good king. He's destroying the pagan high place altars. He's destroying any kind of false gods. He's setting like a righteous pathway that's happening, Hezekiah. And I think in chapter 312, at least chapter 3, we're, we're seeing Hezekiah on the scene as Micah starts to give some of his prophecy. So those are the three kings that are going on in Judah during the time of Micah and his ministry. Now, look at verse 1 again. The word of the Lord came to Micah, the prophet of Moresheth, and the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So in this chapter, first chapter... You find, especially in verses one through seven, 2 through 7, he speaks a prophecy of judgment to Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. But I want to point something to you. What happens in a country usually comes from a capital. Usually comes from, a lot of it comes from leadership. So he's attacking leadership. You're actually going to see in chapter 2, he names out what the leaders are actually doing. But you see here that he names out. It's important who's leading your country. So he comes after Samaria and Jerusalem. From, from them came all this idolatry. In fact, a lot of their idolatrous building, all their idol temple, all their idol worship, all their high places, a lot of those were in their capital cities, Jerusalem and Samaria. And it kind of spread out among the countryside. So he's speaking to both kingdoms at this time. Now here's what I want you to know. Here's the, the thrust of my message this morning. I gave you an introduction, all that is this. Companions in sin together are doomed to be companions in destruction together. Companions in sin together are doomed to be companions in in destruction together. Samaria, the northern kingdom, Jerusalem, the southern, they fed off each other, especially the southern kingdom fed off the sin of the northern. And you sin together, you get destroyed together. And that's basically what the prophet's trying to tell them. Like, listen, Neither one of you are going to make it. You're feeding off of each other. Something's wrong and you've gone rogue against the Lord. He's pointing out their sin. And yes, it's okay to talk about sin. I think we don't talk about it enough anymore. Look in verse 2. He says, Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention. Now, notice this. Pay attention. If I'm convinced of anything, the longer I've been in pastoral ministry is people are not paying attention to God's word. That's basically what Mike is saying. Like, pay attention. I got a message from God, a word from the Lord, verse 1. Pay attention. I am convinced people are not paying attention to the word of God like they used to. I see it all the time, especially when I'm doing, like, discipleship at a private level. I mean, like, people are more and more unaware of their own personal sin. Which, by the way, guess whose sins they are aware of? Everybody else, right? They're aware of their spouse's sin, They're aware of whatever political party they disagree with, their sin, but they're oftentimes unaware of their own personal sin. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention. O earth and all that is in it, let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So he says, people, you need to know that you're not paying attention. And from from the temple in Jerusalem, God is speaking. He is coming down. By the way, he's not physically coming down. But he's coming down using foreign powers. He's coming down using Assyria. Look at verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. 
and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Who actually physically tread down the high places of the earth? When, the, the, when Assyria comes into the northern kingdom and eventually conquers them, and they crush everything to rubble, it's Assyria. But it's Assyria doing it from the Lord's hands. What's interesting. By the way, let me tell you this. I'm a patriot. I love our country. But I can never make a promise to people that America will stand forever. I can't do that. I have no promise to say that. I can tell you this, that I see in the scriptures that if a nation goes rogue against the Lord, that he will use a pagan nation to discipline that nation. Does that remain a possibility for America? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, think, I think there's some bad evidence against us. Years of, years of systemic chattel slavery, past Jim Crow laws, oppression of women. Now, I will tell you this. There's been such great repentance. I love that. But we're not even all there. I mean, like, we're still dealing with the residue of our sins of the past. And not only that, but still to this day, over 60 million babies are being killed. Even to this day, you no longer have to honor him as creator. Like, as you're created, male and female, you now, our culture is encouraging us that you get to make the decision as your own creator what you actually are. You, you are not what you were created to be. You get to decide that. And in fact, if, you're, if, if you think you know what you are, male or female, you need to be cautious and not declare that and, be, and call yourself cisgender and so you won't be offensive. Do you understand, like, we're a country who actually is not much more righteous than, than what we think we are. So they were under God's judgment because they had walked away from God's word and I hope that's not us as a country as well, but sometimes I fear it. Now, here's what's great. If you know the backstory, we're going to discover this. During this time, Judah, I mean, during Ahaz goes really bad. Under Hezekiah, it starts to go really positive. They start worshiping the Lord again. They start obeying the Mosaic law. And guess what happens? The nation of Judah starts to spiral up during Hezekiah's reign, Right? And like, guess what? Assyria comes to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And Assyria has the southern kingdom of Judah outnumbered. In fact, Sennacherib, who is the Assyrian king during that time, he basically, in his annals of writing, say that I captured 200,000 of, of these outer 46 fortified cities of the southern kingdom. I captured 200,000 Israel uh, Ju- uh, people from Judah. And you'll find, we'll look at it, that Second Kings mentions that basically when the Assyrian king tried to actually come and attack Sennacherib, the southern kingdom of Judah, outnumbered, outmanned, they were at the gates of Jerusalem, had already conquered 46 of the fortified, fortified cities of the southwest part of Judah. Guess what the Lord does, like overnight? Destroys 185,000 Assyrians by an angel of the Lord. Now why? Because Hezekiah was repenting. Hezekiah led them in a national, in a national repentance. The, the, they started to repent of their sin. They started to look at the scriptures. They started to do what God had called them to do, and God, they spiraled up. What is the hope of America? It's not our next president. I'm sorry. That is not our hope. My hope's in Jesus. My hope's in a land that repents. My hope's in a land that becomes disciples of Jesus. If there's any hope for America... It's that we will get on our knees and worship the one true God and start going back to the scriptures and reject the secularism and the Marxism that we've bought into and actually start going like, what does the Lord say about life? Let us delightfully walk in it. That's actually what's going to help. I mean, now, where you see a country do that, I'm not going to promise you anything, but I'll say this. You see countries spiral up, and you even seeing in Hezekiah's time, I mean, listen, no one had stopped Assyria at that point. No one could stop them. They were unstoppable and overnight. 185,000. Sennacherib doesn't know what to, to, to do. He's licking his wounds back in Assyria when this happens. He's in Nineveh, the capital, wor- worshiping his false god Nim, uh, Nimrok. And then he gets assassinated. I mean, so like, do you understand when a country repents and goes back to the Lord what that does? So the, the prophet here, he's trying to help them. He's trying to help them see that, man, you've got to repent. You've got to listen. Listen up to me. And the northern kingdom of Israel doesn't. Ahaz doesn't of the southern kingdom. 
but later Hezekiah does. And next week, we're going to look at some of that deliverance at the end of chapter 1. Keep reading with me. So here's what happens, verse 4. And the mountains melt under him. So now he's in apocalyptic language describing what's, what's going to happen when Assyria comes against the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and, and by the way, just know, companions in sin are doomed to be companions in destruction. So, so they're both companions here. One's going to have worse destruction because one repents. That's the only thing that changes it. Now keep looking at it. The mountains shall melt under him, and the valleys shall split open like wax before fire, like water poured down a steep place. So he's describing in this text, um, in apocalyptic language, kind of what the onslaught of a Syrian invasion on the northern kingdom of Israel. Look in verse 5. And by the way, this all happens because of their sin. Now keep looking at verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. Now Jacob is the father of the Israelite nation, all 12 tribes. So he's speaking to the... Northern and southern. That's why I say companions in sin are doomed to be companions in destruction. He says, now for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? He's speaking of that capital city of the northern kingdom. He's saying, you've built high places, false worship. In fact, Samaria, the northern kingdom, was so bad they never had even one good righteous king. Judah kind of flip-flops at times. A good king, bad king, good king, bad king. The northern kingdom never has a good king. Completely evil and pagan. In fact, that's why more pagan kings on top of more pagan kings means they go into judgment, into exile faster than the southern kingdom of Judah. What saved the southern kingdom of Judah is every righteous king that they had kind of held off the judgment hand of God. Why is that? Because that's God's character. If God has held off justice and discipline... It's, he's trying to draw us to repentance. So keep looking at it. But Judah's not off the hook here. Look at it. And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? If you were to read in 2 Kings, you'll find that Ahaz, the king, sees... I mean, already there's pagan altars built in Jerusalem where the very temple is already at. Something you just would seem wrong. But even Ahaz pays off the Assyrian king. And when he sees Syria defeated, goes to Damascus, sees one of their kind of false building altars and decides to build one in Jerusalem himself. So he says, listen, you've been a companion in this, Judah. You know about this. In Jerusalem, Ahaz has set this up. Verse 6, therefore I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Verse 6, the northern kingdom the capital Samaria, it's going to be decimated. It's going to be flattened to the ground by Assyria. Verse 7, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols will lay waste. And from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of prostitute they shall return. So basically in verse 7, he, he's saying like, this is the northern kingdom. All, all this false worship that you've done, worshiping a God other than the one true God, it's all going to come burning down. It's all going to get destroyed. Now, it's interesting. I've told you, companions in sin are doomed to be companions in destruction. Now, hold your place there and look at Second Kings. Let me show this to you. God's Word says this. Look in Second Kings. Are y'all still with me? Y'all still hanging with me? Okay. Second Kings. Look in verse 19. Now, just if you want to go back and read uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, that'd be helpful, wouldn't it? 2 Kings, 2 Kings 17. By the way, if you want to know a lot of background, I mean, you, you could start with 2 Kings 16 and read all the way to chapter 27 and uh, nine chapters, and you would get a good background for Micah, what's going on in Micah's ministry. Now, in verses 7 through 18 of 2 Kings 17, he's decrying all this, all this happened in Israel and why they're going to be judged for their sin. And then look at verse 19. He speaks over to Judah and says, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of the plunderers until they cast them out of his sight. What you find is this. Israel is being judged first for all their sin 
But Israel's sin influenced Judah. Judah takes part. Companions in sin can become companions in destruction. But here's the difference. <coughs> we find under King Hezekiah later that, that the southern kingdom actually repents and God's hand of judgment stays off them. And what brought about that? Well, let's look at this. And we'll end with verse 8. Now this is Micah who's speaking to them. He's a southern kingdom prophet. Still speaking to the northern kingdom, but primarily now he's, a southern, he's, a, he's speaking to the southern kingdom. And look what he does for the southern kingdom in verse 8. He says, For this I will lament and wail. All the destruction that's going to happen for Israel in the southern kingdom, he's going to wail, he's going to cry, he's going to mourn over this. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. I don't know if you've ever heard jackals kind of like make their kind of pack cry. I decided to go on the internet and listen to it. It is annoying. It never stops. And then I was like, ostriches? I didn't even know ostriches spoke, okay? I know ostriches are the one thing when you do kind of the drive-through feeding things where, you know, no one, I hate the ostriches, right? They just like stick their face right inside your car with their little bugged eyes and they just get right in your business. You know what I'm talking about if you've gone through the drive-through animal feeding, right? And they're always buttoning in, aren't they? I mean, they won't even let the animals come in. They just kind of stick their long necks in there and just kind of get aggressive. I mean, one time I almost punched one in the face. I just got tired of it. But the creepy, they just creep me out, so I just roll up my window. But they have this deep bass sound. When you get them together collectively, go on, go on YouTube it sometimes. They have this deep bass sound where like their, I guess their, uh, whatever you would call this area, I mean, it just like swells open and they let out this deep like, oof. And, they, and when they do it together as a pack, you can hear it for miles. It's like a deep bass that rumbles the countryside. So the prophet says this. I am heartbroken over this sin. I'm going to wail and lament. I'm, I'm, I'm stripped naked. Like, you're going to be stripped naked, northern kingdom, when, when, and, and be embarrassed when Assyria comes for you. But I'm doing it right now. Like, I am broken over your sin. I am making lamentation like a jackal and like an ostrich. Like, I am, I am pursuing the Lord on your behalf. Which, by the way, if you ever talk to someone about sin, you have to be broken for their sin before you ever go talk to them. Like, this is the prophet Micah. Remember, they are companions in sin. They're going to be companions in doom. But what happens is this. Micah intercedes. And Micah gets listened to by Hezekiah. And Hezekiah starts a, does a reform that by the time Hezekiah comes first to, his, to the kingdom, already year one, he's starting some religious reforms that actually helps them not to be a partner in destruction at that current point. And what happens is this. Through Micah, one of their prophets, Isaiah, but even Micah, he interceded for them. And instead of Judah, at that particular time, being doomed to destruction, they get saved. And why is that? Because Micah advocates for them. He mourns for them. They listen to him. You know what's interesting? I, we see in Micah a picture of the ultimate. I mean, Micah's a prophet, but he points us to the ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ. Because who is like Yahweh? Jesus. Jesus is the true Micah. Jesus is the Micah that actually could do something about sin. So like Micah's preaching didn't save Israel. Micah's preaching for a season saved Judah. But look at the rest of verse 9. He says to her, Her wound is incurable, and so it has come to Judah. Oh. Micah, he tries, he tries to save Judah ultimately in the end, and he realizes, I can't. You're incurable. Why? Because Micah can't cure their sin. But guess who can cure sin? There will become a greater Micah, one who was like Yahweh, one who could be the ultimate final prophet to do what this prophet can never do. There would come Jesus, who would be the one to cure Israel ultimately of their sin, to cure humanity of their sin. There would come one Micah who would actually fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, would, would fulfill the Mosaic covenant, who would do what none of them could actually do. 
There would come that Micah. And here's what's interesting when you see this Micah. He comes in and he, uh, this true Micah, this Jesus, he fixes it all. He offers himself. See, like Micah here, all he could offer was his tears and his words from God. Jesus comes and offers not only his tears, his words, but his his sacrificial life. He does on the cross what, what we can't do for ourselves. He does what Micah can never do for them. Jesus laments, but Jesus' lamentation in the garden, his tears in the garden, does for us what Micah's tears in his own garden couldn't ever do for them. You know what's interesting? The only thing that really changed, the thing that changed Judah for this short time period was they repented of their sin. And so here's the deal. Companions in sin are doomed to destruction, but we find clearly that if you're not a companion in sin, you're not doomed to destruction. And, and here's what I would say. Do you know that divorce is rising right now in the midst of this COVID? Do you know that? This is kind of crazy to me. Do you know the divorce rate is going up and up and up and up and up? Did you know that? Did you know that during this time? Which to me seems kind of crazy. Why would that happen during this time? I mean, wouldn't it seem that People would be kind of like, you know, resources are divided, separate households, like this is hard. I mean, you know, like it would seem like this would be an unstable time. But I'll, I'll tell you why. Because here's what happens in marriage. Two sinners are put underneath the same house. And what do you think is going to happen if people don't realize their own sin? It's not going to be good. Right? Companions in sin are going to be companions in destruction. They're going to destroy themselves. And at this point... They've been able to make their marriage work because they had enough distractions where they never had to Sabbath together underneath the same roof that much. But then you get something like this happens and people are kind of underneath the same roof a lot more. And here's what's interesting. In the marriages where they can't see their own sin, it starts, they get together during the coronavirus time and all they can sin is, see is their spouse's sin. And they become companions of, of, of sin and results in companions of destruction. But here's what's interesting. I mean, like, don't you see that with Adam and Eve, right? They become the companions of sin. They commit to companions of destruction. But here's the great thing. I had someone call me this last week from New York, and she said, my husband and I are followers. She found me on a, a you know, I'm a certified biblical counselor, so she found me on, a, on, on one of a certification kind of database, and she just called and said, hey, my husband and I are both followers of Jesus, but I, I don't think we can make it. I don't think we can do it. And I said, are, are you serious that you're followers of Jesus? Like, yeah. I said, you'll make it if you'll see your own sin and both of you. So if you'll, if you'll repent, if you'll see your own sin, like, you're going to make it. Two people repenting will reconcile. Two people who are companions in, destruct, in, in sin will be companions in destruction. But I'll tell you this. Two people who are companions in Christ are destined for reconciliation. I told this sister and said, listen, if you and your husband are serious, like if you're seriously followers of the one true God, if you repent of your sin, and by the way, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, I know that sounds like some repeating prophet. People do not see their sin anymore. 99% of the time, when I even sit with a couple and I'm trying to reconcile their marriage, they are busy pointing the finger at the other person as much as they possibly can. And what's happening is companions in sin are committing, are doomed to be companions in destruction. I have seen redemption happen when I have seen couples go, okay, let me see my own sin is bigger. Let me see the log in my own eye. Let me repent. And they start verbalizing it. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. This is what I've done. Will you forgive me? And they like get serious about their sin. Oh, friends, companions in Christ are destined for reconciliation. And what a great time and a moment for us to take communion because here's the deal. Micah here, he wails, he laments just like our Savior did, but Micah couldn't save him. Ultimately, he says, the wound's incurable. They listen to him for a moment, but not ultimately. But in the end... We've got the one true Micah, the one who is like Yahweh. One who, actually, who is exactly like Yahweh. The one you like, you want to know what God is like? He's like Jesus. And this same Jesus, with his own blood, went to the cross, bought the forgiveness of our sins, so that we don't have to suffer the judgment and wrath. And this same Jesus reconciles our relationships from spouse to co-worker to brother and sister, 
Companions in sin are doomed to destruction, but companions in Christ, wherever that happens, whatever relationship happens, you're destined for reconciliation. Israel didn't make it. Judah made it for a little while, and it all had to do with them coming, them, them listening to that, to Micah, that one who, whose name means who is like Yahweh. Would you do this? Would you stand? Take your communion cup, and I want to take a moment for us to Prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. What a great time to take it again. As we see Micah, Micah points us to the ultimate Micah. Micah couldn't do it as much as he tried. I mean, he's going to make a great shot at it. You're going to see. I'm so thankful for this one true Micah. He has done for me what Israel and Judah ultimately couldn't do for themselves. They ultimately, their sin overtakes them into destruction. In Christ today, as I take communion, I'm reminding myself that sin will not have the final say over me. My sins are forgiven. I have power over sin by the finished work of the cross. The Holy Spirit's in me. And as I keep remembering through communion what the Lord has done for me, and I think of that day, I'm reminded of it. So could we do this? Would you take just a moment with your head's bowed, just you and Jesus. Would you take some time to confess sin to the Lord? If there's someone next to you you need to confess sin, or someone you need to text and confess sin, or maybe you need to step out and call someone and confess sin, you can do that at this time. Let me just give you a moment to confess sin before the Lord before we take communion. Do, do what Israel wouldn't do. Do what Judah ultimately wouldn't do long term but do what we can do because we have the greater Micah today. Have that time, just you and the Lord, then we'll take communion.